0: The story is told about an Indian man who was very wealthy. He owned a lot of property, and his sons engaged in fighting with one another. There was a lot of rivalry, a lot of strife, a lot of jealousy among them. Well, when this older Indian man was about to die, he did something interesting and unique. He called his sons together by his bedside, and he divided up his property among them. But he knew That they would continue to fuss and fight with one another. So he ordered that a bundle of sticks be brought in. And this bundle of sticks was wrapped, and he asked each one of his sons to take the bundle and try to break it. Well, to no avail, none of them could break it because the sticks were united together. Then he instructed his oldest son to untie the twigs and to take each one and break it individually. And so they broke them individually. And he made the point that if they stood united, they would stand. On the other hand, if they were divided, they would fall. He was trying to preach unity among his sons. The Bible says you and I as Christians are called to a life of spiritual unity. And we see a lot of disunity in our culture today. When it comes to politics, there's a lot of division in our country. We know there's a problem with racism. Sometimes the media hypes that up. There's all kinds of divisions in our culture that are taking place today. There's also divisions that are happening in the church. There is a denominational attitude. Sometimes Christians are divided over petty, small things. And you see, God calls us to a spirit of unity within the body of Christ. We're never going to have perfect unity because we're all sinful, we're all fallen. But Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17, before he went back to heaven, was that the church would be one. And so that's what I want to talk about this morning is striving for unity. So turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, we want to look at verse 11 all the way to verse 22, and we want to look at the subject of striving for unity. Now remember, when the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Ephesians, the theme of this letter is the church, the body of Christ. And when he's talking about the church, he's not talking about a local church. He's talking about the universal church and he's not referring to a building. A lot of times when we hear the word church, we think of a building with a steeple, brick and mortar, but that's not the definition of the church. In fact, we all use the expression, I'm going to church, and that really is an unbiblical expression because we don't go to church. This building is not the house of God. You and I are the church. We are the house of God, and so we don't go to church We are the church. And so Paul here in the book of Ephesians is talking about the church. Now, what has he mentioned to us about the church thus far? Well, first of all, he talks about the spiritual blessings of the church. We looked at that in chapter 1. Then he talked about the power of the church. He also talked about Jesus being the head of the church. And then last week, we heard from Andre, he talked about the salvation of the church in verses 1 through 10. Now when we get to this section, verses 11 through 22, Paul is going to be discussing the unity of the church. And what he's going to basically say in this section is that Jew and Gentile are one body in the church. There is no more distinction between Jew and Gentile. All those distinctions, whether it's race, whether it's nationality, whether it's language, whether it's gender, all those distinctions are have been spiritually torn down in Christ. It's not that you cease to be male or female. You cease to be English or Arabic. It doesn't mean that those distinctions go away. It simply means in the church, we are one spiritually. Now, the reason why Paul had to bring this up was because in Ephesians, he's writing to Gentile Christians. And you have to understand that Jewish people despise Gentile people. The Jews were God's chosen people, and they felt superior to other people because they were given the covenants, they were given God's law, they were given the temple, the tabernacle, they were given all of God's blessings, and so they developed an attitude of superiority. Rather than reaching out to Gentiles, what happened was they became arrogant, and they looked at Gentiles as unclean, In fact, they wouldn't even want to go through Gentile territory. Many times they would walk around Gentile areas like Samaria because the Samaritans were half-breeds. They were half-Gentile, half-Jew. And so the Jews had this disdain for the Gentiles, and they didn't believe that they could be saved. And so there was this fracture in the church. And Paul specifically, if you read chapter 3, which John's going to get into next week, Paul says, I was called specifically by God to present this message to the Gentiles, that they are one with the Jews and that they're on equal footing. They both have the same spiritual privileges. Now, this was a radical message back in that day. As I said, the Jews looked down on Gentiles and the fact that Paul preached that message, he got persecuted for it. He went around saying, look, the Gentiles are equal to the Jews and basically there is no distinction anymore. They have the same status before God because he has formed the church, the body of Christ. And that was a radical message. Like in the 60s, if you preached the message that blacks and whites were on equal footing spiritually, if you preach that blacks and whites were equal, what would happen? You probably would get looked down upon because there was a distinction back during that time of racism and it still exists today. And so what Paul has to do here in this section is he has to remind the Gentiles that they're not on the outside that they're equal to the Jews, and that God has formed one body, and he's basically rebuking the Jews as well. Now, when he talks about unity here, let me tell you what unity is not, because there's a big push today for unity. In fact, in the end times, if you read the book of Revelation, there's gonna be this push for one world religion. We're not talking about that type of unity. Unity does not mean uniformity. We don't look alike, we don't talk alike, we don't always act alike we're all different in our personalities and in our appearance. Unity does not mean uniformity, nor does it mean unanimity. Unanimity means that we all agree on everything. You and I know that we're all different. We come from different backgrounds. We have different perspectives, so we're not always going to agree on everything. So unity is not uniformity. It's not unanimity, nor is it unbiblical compromise, because there are people today that want unity at the expense of truth, And what they say is you ought to set aside the core doctrines of Christianity that define Christianity in order to achieve unity. Well, the Bible doesn't say that. Yes, we are to seek out unity, but not at the expense of the core doctrines of the faith. And so when Paul talks about unity here, he's not talking about uniformity, he's not talking about unanimity, and he's not talking about unbiblical compromise, But here's the question that I want to answer this morning. How can we practically maintain unity within our relationships within the church? Because you and I know the church is divided today. This church may not be divided, although John would probably tell you historically here, there have been divisions in the church. But there are some churches that are very, very divided. How can we practically have unity in the church? How can we have unity in our marriage? How can we have unity with our children? with our coworkers. And let me say at the outset, you're not always going to have unity. That, always, that may be your desire, that may be your goal. You may strive for unity, and you're not always going to have it. Now, notice in chapter 4 of Ephesians, you don't need to turn there, Paul says that we are to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Notice he says we're to preserve it. Why does he use that word preserve? Because we already have unity in Jesus Christ positionally, we already are one. I'm one with you. I'm one with my African brothers and sisters. I'm one with the Christians on the island of Dominica. Why? Because we all have the same Holy Spirit living on the inside of us. We all have the same destiny. We all have the same Bible. Jesus Christ lives in me just like he lives in them. And so we are one in the body of Christ. We already have that positionally, but Paul says you got to preserve that unity. Husband and wife, When they get married and they physically are intimate with one another, they are one in spirit, the Bible says. But you and I know that just because you're one positionally in your marriage doesn't mean you don't have to work out that unity. You have to preserve that unity in your marriage. You got to do things to work at it. And so how can we practically have unity in the church today? Let me share with you five principles from this passage of Scripture that will help us maintain unity, not only within the church, but in our relationships with one another. The first principle is this. We must remember that we all came from the same lost condition. We all came from the same lost condition. Look at verse 11. Therefore, on the basis of what he said about salvation in verses 1 through 10, he says, remember that formally, you who are Gentiles, he says, I'm going to talk to you about your past. He says, I want you to remember that you Gentiles by birth And you guys were called the uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that would be the Jews, which is done in the body by human hands. He says, I want you Gentiles to remember in verse 12, that at that time, before you came to Christ, here was your spiritual condition. You were separate from Christ. In other words, you were Christless. You didn't know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. He says, secondly, you were excluded from citizenship in Israel you were nationless. You weren't part of the Israeli nation. You weren't part of the covenant people of God. Thirdly, he says, you were foreigners to the covenant of promise. You were covenantless. He says, you were without hope. You were hopeless. He says also, you were without God in the world. You were godless. And so here is what he says about these Gentiles. And obviously, this would apply to the Jews to some degree. He basically says this to them, prior to salvation, you were Christless, you were nationless, you were covenantless, you were hopeless, and you were godless. That was your spiritual heritage prior to salvation. Now, remember what Andre talked about last week, the coroner's report? He said in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, he uses different terms there. He says, prior to salvation, you were dead in your sins. You were dominated by the world, the flesh, and the devil. You were disobedient, and you were damned. That is your spiritual legacy, and that is my spiritual legacy. So prior to salvation, you have to understand that we all were born into a condition of sin. We were all lost. Now, why does that help me with unity? Here's the reason why. When we all realize that we come from the same condition spiritually, that causes me to have humility. You see, I can't walk around with an attitude of pride. I can't look down on other people regardless of their past because ultimately we're all sinners. Now I realize that some people are more depraved than others. Jeffrey Dahmer was more depraved than Mother Teresa, but the fact of the matter is Jeffrey Dahmer and Mother Teresa were born into a sinful condition and they were both sinners despite the fact that there are degrees of depravity. You may have come from a home where you were raised in a Christian home and you were very good growing up until you came to Jesus Christ. You were a very moral person. On the other hand, some of you came from a very checkered, sordid past. You came from an irreligious home. Regardless if you grew up in a Christian experience or you came from an irreligious home, it doesn't matter your background. We all need the same grace of God We all need the same spirit of God, and you know what that causes us to do? It causes us to have a spirit of humility. I don't want to look down on other people, regardless of their past, because if they've been saved by Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter their past. Now, their past may have effects in their life, no doubt about that, but the fact of the matter is, we all come from the same lost condition. Sociologists today will tell you that man is born inherently good. The Bible says the opposite. Man is born inherently sinful. We are sinners by nature, and we're also sinners by choice. That's why we're separated from God. Most of you here know Greg Laurie. John has mentioned Greg Laurie. He sort of has replaced Billy Graham. He does a lot of crusades. And you'll notice the picture up here. There's a crusade that he did, a harvest crusade. And on the right, I tried to block it out because I didn't want to be too graphic, but the article said that that particular gentleman that's praying actually came up, and he had a tattoo on the side of his shaved head. And it said, very strong profanity, blank love. I'll let you fill in the blank. That was tattooed on his head. This man came up and he accepted Jesus Christ, and God transformed his life. You see, we don't want to look down on people. There are people that come from broken pasts, people that have been hurt very deeply. There are people that you and I would not agree with their lifestyle, but you know what? God saved them by His grace. And so if you want to see unity in the church, you know where it starts? An attitude of humility, realizing that we all have the same spiritual heritage. We all have the same spiritual past. We were sinners, and we're all saved by the same grace of God. There's a second principle that you and I must have if we're going to maintain unity in the church, and that is this we must avoid negative stereotypes or attitudes. We must avoid negative stereotypes or attitudes. Notice, if you will, verse 11. He says, therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, now here's the stereotype, here's the negative attitude, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. You know what the Jewish people who were circumcised called the non-Jewish person, the Gentile? They called them the uncircumcision. Now, to you and I, that doesn't mean anything today because we do it simply for medical reasons. But in that day, to call somebody an uncircumcised Gentile was a term of derision. It was a pejorative term. It was a negative term. It was a stereotype. It was a negative attitude. Because the Jews thought they were superior because they had the mark of circumcision. Remember, God called Israel to be his chosen nation out of all the nations of the earth. And to give them an outward sign that they were his chosen people, God marked them with circumcision. Now, circumcision didn't save you, as we saw in the book of Galatians. That's what the Judaizers are trying to say. All it did was identify you as God's covenant people. Do you remember, for example, when God destroyed the earth by water? He made a covenant with Noah, and that covenant basically said that he would never destroy the earth again by water, and God gave an outward symbol of his covenant. What was it? The rainbow. Well, God gave Israel basically an outward symbol of his covenant with them, and that was circumcision. But what it did was it created an attitude of superiority. It created an attitude that they were better, and what they did was they developed this arrogant spirit And they began to develop negative attitudes and stereotypes towards the Gentiles. Listen, if you and I are going to have unity in the church, we've got to avoid stereotypes and negative attitudes, attitudes of pride, attitudes that I'm better than you, attitudes that I have wealth and you don't. We can look down on the poor. We can look down on the homeless. We can look down on people that are just not like us. Maybe they don't dress like us. Maybe they don't act like us. Maybe they have different styles of worship than we do. You see, we have to be careful because in the church today, we have our own stereotypes. We have our own negative attitudes. And you know what that does? It often does not foster unity. It creates barriers. It creates walls. There are denominations today that think they're the only people going to heaven. They think that they're better than everybody else. And listen, I love Calvary Chapel, but it's not about Calvary Chapel. It's about the kingdom of God. It's not about the Baptist. It's not about the Presbyterians. Those things have their place, but ultimately, you and I are part of the same family of God, and we have to be careful of the stereotypes that we develop. Now, the world has stereotypes of Christians. For example, Christians, all Christians are what? Hypocrites. All Christians think they're perfect. See, those are negative stereotypes. But we can develop our own stereotypes. Here's one in particular. Democrats cannot be saved. I know some of you want to say, amen, brother, preach it. (laughs) Listen, you can be a Democrat and be a Christian. We also have stereotypes in the church. Baptists, all Baptists are legalistic and rigid. All charismatics are hyper with their emotions. They're crazy. Hyper-emotionalism. Kind of reminds me of the joke where this Methodist person who was born again died and they went to heaven, and St. Peter said, "Uh, what denomination are you? He said, Methodist. He said, all right, I want you to go to room 120, but be very quiet when you go past room 108. So he went. A Presbyterian died, went to heaven. Peter said, what denomination? Presbyterian? He said, all right, I want you to go to room 125, but I want you to be very quiet and tiptoe past room 108. Finally, a Lutheran died, went to heaven, and Peter said, what denomination are you? He said, well, I'm Lutheran, and uh, he said, all right, I want you to go to room 140, but I want you to be very quiet when you go past room 108. Finally, the Lutheran said to Peter, why do I have to be quiet when I go past that room? He said, listen, the Baptists are in that room, and they think they're the only ones in heaven. (laughs) And you see, that's the problem. We develop stereotypes in the church where Christians think that they're superior, to other people. And we have to watch those particular stereotypes that they do not get in the way. Because we know the world has them. You say, well, Mike, what are the attitudes that I need to have in order to foster unity? Well, if you look at the screen, chapter 4, verses 2 through 6, here are some of the positive attitudes that Paul says we're to cultivate if we're to have unity. He says, be completely humble, gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. And then look at verse 3, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Notice in verse 3, he doesn't say generate unity. Why? Because we already have unity. He says, I want you to preserve it. How do you preserve unity? Notice the attitudes in verse 12. He says, we're to cultivate. He says, we're to be humble, we're to be gentle, we're to be patient, and we're to bear with one another in love. You see, there's no place for discrimination. There's no place for prejudice in the church because those types of attitudes basically create disunity, and what it does is it bars people out. About 40 years ago, there's a true story about a pastor in the South who pastored a larger church, and it was primarily an Anglo church there were some black people in the church. Well, the pastor felt led one day to start a Bible study with one of the black gentlemen that worked at the church. He was the janitor. And so he started to have a Bible study with this gentleman, and they had great fellowship with one another. Well, finally, the church board came to the pastor and they said, look, we want you to stop having a Bible study with this black guy because it's creating a bad image in our community. And he said, I'm not going to stop that because it's unbiblical and I'm going to continue to have the Bible study. Well, you know what happened? In the town, they wouldn't let him shop. They wouldn't let him get groceries. They wouldn't let him get gas. The pastor unfortunately couldn't take it. He had a nervous breakdown and so they had to take him to the psychiatric ward. And two days later, he jumped out a window and committed suicide. Now, that's an extreme case, but it's simply to say, what happens is when you develop discrimination, prejudice, stereotypes, negative attitudes, what happens is it creates division and it creates fraction. And that's why you show me a church where the leadership is prejudice and they're committed to discrimination, I will show you a dead church. The Spirit of God is not there. Why? Because God is colorblind. God doesn't see that. God sees people as to whether or not they're in Christ Jesus. Well, there's a third principle that you and I must apply if we're going to have unity, and that is this. We must recognize the cross as the basis of our unity. Look at verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off, that's the Gentiles, have been brought near, that's salvation, By the blood of Jesus Christ. That represents his death. For he himself, now the Greek here is emphatic Christ is the one who brings unity. For he himself, verse 14, is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man. Thus establishing peace and might reconcile, verse 16, them both in one body to God through the cross by having it put to death the enmity. And then in verse 17, he came and he preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. There's a story told about a church in Africa where it's made up of all these different tribes. And here's the interesting thing about this church in Africa is all these tribes that worship at this one particular church, they were known to be at warfare with one another in their previous christ uh, Christless existence. They basically would kill one another. There was a lot of disharmony. There was a lot of acrimony. There was a lot of murder and death. And what happened is many of them came to Christ, and as a result, they gathered together in this church, and they would sit on a Sunday, and they would worship the same Christ together putting away all the strife and the enmity that once existed. You know why? Because of the cross of Jesus Christ. What Paul here says is that ultimately it is the cross of Christ that brings about true unity. You see, when I embrace the cross, when I embrace the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, I have the same Holy Spirit as my brothers and sisters in Africa. I have the same Holy Spirit as my brothers and sisters in the Middle East no matter what part of the world you go to, we have the same Holy Spirit, we have the same destiny, we have the same Bible, we have the same opportunities to serve the Lord that every other Christian has. You see, so we're all on the same team. And the reason why is the cross of Jesus Christ is ultimately what unifies us. And that's Paul's point, is the cross is actually what brought the two parties together. In fact, you'll notice the picture up here on the screen Show that picture. There it is. You see where Jew and Gentile are divided, and you'll notice it's the cross of Jesus Christ that ultimately makes us equal at the foot of the cross. And so we must realize that it is Christ who brings salvation to all people. There's a lot of people that have superficial unity in our culture today, but it's not cross centered. This is the problem with the social gospel. The social gospel basically says, We want to help people who are downtrodden. We want to help people who are poor. And there's nothing wrong with that. We as Christians want to help people in those conditions. But ultimately, it's not the social gospel that transforms the human heart. It is Christ Jesus who transforms the human heart. Christ comes to live on the inside of us. He transforms the human heart. And you know what? I can forgive my brother and my sister. You know Jews and Palestinians hate one another. Just this week, some of the Palestinians sent their rockets over into Jewish territory. There is a deep-seated hatred. Back in the 60s, and even in today, there's a hatred with blacks and whites. There's a hatred with Italians and Irish. You have all these wars going on. And what happens is Jesus Christ comes in, he transforms a human heart, and a Jew who has been saved by Jesus Christ, and a Palestinian who's been saved by Jesus Christ, they can worship in the same congregation. Why? Because they both are equal at the foot of the cross. He says it's the cross that transforms a person. It's not a superficial unity. It's the cross of Jesus Christ. I was reading a story recently about Germans who were actually moving in on their enemy, and they came to this farmhouse, and they started to shoot at the family that was in the farmhouse. Well, the family decided that they wanted to run to a barn. And right before they went to the barn to flee the shots from the Germans, their daughter got loose, and she ran out in the field. And immediately, when the Germans saw the little girl and the family that was firing back saw their daughter go out into the middle of the field, they ceased fire. Because they realized it was a little child that actually momentarily and temporarily brought peace. And you see, Jesus is our peace child. The babe of Bethlehem is the one that brings peace where there is hatred he is the one that brings peace where there is animosity. He is the one who brings peace where there is racial divide. He is the one who brings peace where there is this sectarian attitude, I'm better than you, I'm in a different class than you. You see, it's ultimately the cross of Jesus Christ that does that. Well, there's another principle that he gives us here. If you and I are going to have unity, and that is this, we must address the barriers or hindrances that create disunity. We must address the barriers or hindrances that create disunity. Notice verse 13. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. By the way, the blood of Christ represents His death. He says in verse 14, for He Himself, that is Christ, is our peace who made both groups into one, Jew and Gentile. And notice what it says here. He broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing, verse 15, in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. I want you to notice the barriers here. He mentions two of them, that often hindered disunity between Jew and Gentile. The first one is the dividing wall. I want you to look at this picture here. You'll notice up on the screen, there's the court of the Gentiles in the temple. Now on the left, the court of the Gentiles was the only area that the Gentiles could go. And you'll notice that line there, the arrow that says dividing wall, there was actually a wall that Gentiles could not go beyond. In fact, they had a sign that said anyone who crosses this line is subject to death, and you're responsible. Here's another picture right here. Next slide. You'll notice here, you see the court of the Gentiles. This is a different area here, but I want you to notice on the right side there, the middle wall of partition. You see, that was the wall that basically blocked Gentiles from going into the temple. You say, why did God create this? Well, listen, God initially created this because he wanted Israel to be separate from the nations. But watch this. His goal was not that Israel would become a cul-de-sac. God wanted Israel to turn around and reach the Gentile nations. But what happened was the Israelites became arrogant, they became proud, and they began to ostracize the Gentiles, and they pushed them out. And you know what Paul says here? When Jesus Christ died on the cross, the veil was torn, and that wall right here, that middle wall of partition was torn down. Literally, in 70 AD, the Romans destroyed the temple But you know what? That wall was broken down when Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. Then he mentions another barrier. Look what he says here in verse 15. By abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. What is he talking about there? He's not talking about the moral law of God. He's talking about the ceremonial laws that God gave Israel. The feasts, the festivals, all the dietary laws, all those ceremonial laws that made Israel distinct, he did away with those in the New Testament. Listen, that's why you and I can eat pork. That's why you and I don't celebrate Passover. Jesus is our Passover lamb. We don't celebrate Yom Kippur. Why? Because Jesus paid the penalty for sin. And so all those distinctions, all those ceremonies were done away with. They were barriers to the Gentiles. And so, here is the principle. If you and I are going to have unity, watch this, we got to deal with barriers in relationships, hindrances. Think about your marriage. Some of you, the reason why your marriage is not doing good is because you've allowed barriers. Now, listen, every marriage is going to struggle, but there are barriers. And when you have one partner that says this, I'm not dealing with those barriers. I'm not going to counseling. I'm not dealing with those barriers. You're the problem. I'm not the problem. And by the way, even if you say I am the problem, but guess what? I don't want to deal with the problem. That's a barrier. You can't have unity. When you have churches that will not deal with jealousy, superiority, pride, When you have negative, sinful attitudes that are hindering, I'm not going to say I'm sorry. I'm not going to apologize. If they don't like it, tell them to get over it. You see, these are barriers that often create disunity. Here's a big one in our culture, politics. Now, I'm not asking you to give up your political views. I have a friend in South Florida. We went to high school together, really good friends over the years, he's changed. His politics have become totally different than mine. And you know what? We would start talking about this, and it would get too intense. We'd text back and forth. And I wanted to send him a picture of somebody hanging from a noose. And I thought, no, I can't send that. (laughs) And so it started to get acrimonious. And then finally, I said, you know what? We would have friendly debates about it. But then at times, it would get heated. And I said, you know what? I'm going to stop because it's creating disunity. Yeah, I can have an opinion, but you know, politics in our culture has become an area of enmity, and Christians can get this way in the church. They got barriers, and so here's what God wants you to do. Are you listening? Say amen. If you have an issue with somebody, why do you have an issue? Here's the first question you need to ask. Am I the problem? If you're the problem, you need to be humble and you need to go to that person, as far as it depends on you, the Bible says, be at peace with all men. You've got to take responsibility to say, what is my role in this? That takes humility, you've got to humble yourself, and if you're the problem, you've got to go to that person. You say, but Mike, they're the problem. Then sit them down and say, let's talk about this, because obviously we're not getting along. We're struggling. You say, I don't want to do that. Then listen carefully. Are you listening? Say amen. You cannot worship God properly if you're out of sorts with your fellow man. Now, if you do everything you can to try to rectify the disunity in the relationship and they're not interested, there's nothing you could do. It says, as far as it depends on you, Romans 12, be at peace with all men. God, I've done my part, then you're absolved. But if you take this attitude, I'm not gonna resolve issues in my marriage. I'm not going to forgive my parents for molesting me, as hard as that is. I'm not going to address this issue. This is hindered. Listen, you can come to church week after week. God doesn't receive your worship. What does he say in Matthew 5? If you have a problem with your brother, before you go to the temple and worship, he said, leave your offering and get it right with your what? Brothers. And you see, a lot of times we don't want to deal with barriers in relationships. You say, but I've tried and it just didn't work. Okay, you tried. I get it. We're not going to have perfect unity in this life. We see division even in the New Testament. Paul and Barnabas didn't agree over John Mark and they divided and formed two missionary teams. But here's what we all have to guard against an attitude that says, I don't care. See, God is interested in our relationships with other people. You say, but Mike, what if someone's offended me and they don't know they've offended me? If it's a big enough issue that gets in your craw and you can't let it go, then you need to go to them. But what does the Bible say? Love forgives a multitude of what? Sins. Listen, you got you to gotta learn to forgive. You can't wear your feelings on your sleeve all the time. But if you can't get over it, you need to go to your brother, your sister, your parents, whoever it is, and you want to address the issue, but you cannot grow in your walk with God if you're unwilling to deal with unresolved issues in your life. See, there were two barriers with the Gentiles and the Jews. That literal wall and all of these ceremonial laws, God did away with them. What barriers do you have to do away with in order to have unity? Well, there's one final point for this morning, if you and I are going to have unity, and that is this. We must remember all Christians share in the same spiritual privileges. We all share in the same spiritual privileges. Whether you're red, black, or white, whether you're from Africa, whether you're from Asia, whether you're from the Middle East, whether you're from the U.S., whether you're from Australia, we all share in the same spiritual privileges if we are born again. Look at verse 17. You say, what are these spiritual privileges? Well, he gives them to us. Here they are. And he came, and he preached. Here's the first one. Peace to you who are far away, and peace to those who are near. To Jew and Gentile, they have peace with God. That's the first spiritual privilege. Look at verse 18. For through him, that is through Christ, we both, Jew and Gentile, have access in one spirit to the Father. Not only do we have peace with God, we have access to God. That's the second privilege. Then in verse 19, he gives a third privilege. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens. You Gentiles are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. You know what he's saying there? Our third privilege is we are citizens of a heavenly kingdom. Jews and Gentiles, Africans and Middle East people, Italians and Irish, Jews and Palestinians. We're all citizens of heaven. There aren't those distinctions. And then he gives another one in verse 19. And he says, you are of God's what? Household. Here's another privilege. You are part of the family of God. And then finally... In verses 20 through 22, he gives the final spiritual privilege. We are temples of the Holy Spirit, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. He says our final privilege is we are the temple of God. Now, to help you see that last one, look at this picture. Here's what he's saying right here. Well, here are our privileges. He says we have peace with God. We have access to God. We are citizens of heaven with God. Next slide. We are part of the family of God, and we are indwelt by the Spirit of God. We are a temple. What does he mean, a temple? Well, look at this picture right here. This is a temple, and he says this. See the bottom red one? Who's that a picture of? Sorry, it's white. Jesus was not Caucasian, okay? By the way, we ran into that in Dominica. I was using the Evangie cube, and I presented this Jesus, and this guy just got infuriated. He said, I'm not going to listen to you. So why? He said, because your Christ is white. I says, no, He's not. I said, a lot of times in America, we have this white Jesus with blonde hair and blue eyes. I said, he was Middle Eastern. He said, well, all right. He goes, I'll listen to you. And then when I started in my presentation, he started, I'm not listening to you. And he went in very, very angry. Listen, he says, Jesus is the cornerstone. What's the cornerstone? The cornerstone is what set the whole building it's the chief cornerstone because it is it is the determining stone that sets the rest of the building he says jesus is the cornerstone and the apostles are the foundation their teaching you say well where are we we're the living stones you see all of us here god is building a temple all across the world so watch this as i'm snapping my fingers right now Someone in Asia is getting saved. Someone in Africa is getting saved. Another living stone is being added to this temple. It's a big, big temple. Everyone who gets saved, Easter Sunday, those people that come to Christ, they're added to this temple. And guess what? In the Old Testament, where did God dwell? In the temple. We don't have a physical temple anymore. The church, the body of Christ, we are the temple of God. God dwells in us. Not only individually, but God indwells us corporately. And so you and I are living stones. But I got one more thing, and this is exciting. Are you ready? Are you ready? You are priests in that temple and priestesses. You say, wait a minute, Mike. What do you mean I'm a priest? No, 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 not, that, not a Catholic priest. He says in 1 Peter chapter 2, in this temple that God is building worldwide, you and I are priests and priestesses, you say, in what sense? We have access to God. And watch this. We offer up spiritual sacrifices. I don't offer up a lamb. I don't offer up a goat. I offer up spiritual sacrifices. And you know what the greatest sacrifice that I offer, Romans 12, I offer myself to God. He says, present yourself as a living sacrifice. So isn't that a great spiritual privilege? We are temples of God. God lives in us individually. He lives in us corporately. We are priests and priestesses in that temple, and God is building a worldwide temple. So here's the point. All Christians have the same spiritual privileges. We all have access to God. We all have peace with God. We all are citizens of God's kingdom. We all are temples of God, and we're all part of the family of God. Does that make you and I better than anybody else? No. If we share the same spiritual privileges, stop looking down on black people. Stop looking down on people that are homeless. Stop looking down on Christians that may worship a little bit different than you. Now, if somebody compromises the core of Christianity, Jesus is not God. The Bible is not the word of God. Salvation is by works then yes, you separate. You love, but you separate. I'm not going to pray in unity with Mormons, Jehovah Witnesses, and Muslims. Do I love them? Yes. Do I share unity with them? No. Because they don't have the Holy Spirit living on the inside of them. But my Baptist brothers, my Presbyterian brothers, my Methodist brothers, my Lutheran brothers, if they know Jesus Christ and they're born again, regardless of their denomination, they are my brothers and sisters in Christ. We may defer on styles of worship, nuances of doctrine we may disagree over, but you know what? I would pray with a group of pastors every week when I was in Jersey. We all came from different backgrounds, but we shared a common faith in Jesus Christ. We had the same spiritual privileges. So how do you have unity? Practically, Number one, what does he say? He says, you must remember, we all came from the same lost condition. You're not better than anybody else, neither am I. Secondly, he says this, avoid negative stereotypes and attitudes, you uncircumcised Philistine. Thirdly, he says, if you want to have unity, recognize the cross as the basis of your unity. Listen, it's the cross that unites us, despite the fact that we're all different. Fourthly, he says, if you want to have unity, address the barriers or dividers that are causing disunity. What are the barriers in your life today? And then finally, realize that all Christians share the same spiritual privileges. Is there somebody this morning you need to go to? Is there somebody you need to get it right with? Do you need to work at your marriage and say, look, I've been part of the problem. I got to deal with this. Do you need to go to your child? Did somebody abuse you physically and sexually, and maybe you haven't addressed that, and you need to go to that person and forgive them. You say, yeah, but they died. I like what Charles Stanley said. Take a chair, place it in front of you. You take a chair, pretend that person who abused you is in front of you, and say to them directly, I choose to forgive you for what you did to me. I don't feel like forgiving you. I hate your guts but I want you to know that I forgive you because God has forgiven me such a great debt, and I choose to forgive you in Jesus Christ. That begins the healing, and then it's a daily choice to forgive. I have to forgive initially, and then it's an ongoing decision when Satan brings all that garbage back to my mind. Who is it you need to get right with this morning? Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for reminding us that we are unified in the church. And Lord, you're building a worldwide church. It's not about us. Lord, we tend to think that our culture is superior. We tend to think that our churches are superior. But Lord, we know that you are a missionary God and that, Lord, you're calling out a people under your name from every nation, tribe, tongue, and language. And Lord, your word says in Revelation that when we get up there, people from all nations will be represented. We thank you, God, for our unity in the body of Christ. But God, help us to flesh that out. Help us to work at unity. Father, we know it takes work. It takes diligence to be able to shut down those barriers. Father, we thank you. And just take a minute now to pray. If there's someone you need to forgive or some issue that God is asking you to deal with, just do business with God right now. Just take a minute in quietness. Father, we thank you for speaking to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.